rock on which we can depend, matchless in his majesty and power and authority. We ask that we would be hit by those things this morning as we uh, hear your word taught, that you would help us to see your glory, your awesomeness, and to light in you and you alone. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. He is King of Kings forever. We sing that, we declare that, and that is such a precious truth. But I don't know about you, sometimes it does not feel like he is King of Kings. Sometimes we know the truth that he is, but in this life, in this world, sometimes it feels more like a roller coaster that you just wish you could get off of, right? You don't want to be here anymore. It's just insanely chaotic. I don't know what the craziest chaotic uh, roller coaster you've ever been on is. Uh, I'm not talking about the fastest roller coaster. I'm not talking about the tallest roller coaster. I'm talking about one of those roller coasters where it's spinning around, and once you're done with it, you don't know what end is up and what end is down. You don't know what direction you should be walking. You don't even, you're not even able to walk at all. I remember there was this one amusement park that had a ride where you sat on this thing that you, you'd spin around this way, and then as you're spinning around this way, a thing would spin around while you're spinning around this way, and then that thing would spin around this way, so you're just doing this the whole way through. And then by the end of it, not only are you throwing everything up that you ate that day, but you're also just, you want to lie down wherever you are and just say, make it all stop, right? Dizzy, those little birds uh, spinning around your head, you say, make it all stop. And I don't know about you, but the last couple years, we may be tempted to say as we look around at life, just make it all stop, right? We're, we're, we're done with this roller coaster. I, I just want it to stop. The good news is God has us here today and this text appointed for us today to open up and to ground our feet in his sovereignty. We sing about it. We believe it. And this morning we will see it so clearly. The sovereignty of God is the dramamine for our souls. It keeps us from getting seasick in all of life's storms. The sovereignty of God is the ballast for our boats. It keeps us from toppling over the sovereignty of God is the anchor for our souls. It keeps us, it holds us, and it will never let us go no matter what is going on around us. And we will see that clearly this morning in Daniel chapter 2. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, and we will begin by reading verses 24 through 31, or verse 30 rather, this morning, and ask God's blessing on our time together. Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven 
who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while you were on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Father, thank you for these words and the rest of this text that will remind us of your sovereign control over all things. It's so easy to say that we believe that, but functionally to live differently as if we were in control, as if the world was out of control, as if there was no king reigning, supreme, sovereign over all things. God, we want to be reminded of your sovereignty over empires, over kings and kingdoms, and over every single soul in this room. You are sovereign over the grand things. You're sovereign over the little things. You're sovereign over those massive epics in the history of the world, and you're sovereign over every single day that we live. So, Father, comfort us with your sovereignty. Challenge us with your sovereignty. We need to live differently because you are sovereign and you are in control. So challenge us this morning, encourage us, comfort us, and point us to Christ who is the rock of ages that we will see in this text. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Apart from you doing that amazing work of illuminating our understanding, we will not see what we need to see. So open our eyes to see Christ. We pray it all in his name for his glory. Amen. Daniel chapter 2. We will be finishing out this chapter this morning, Lord willing. And we will see as we go through it, three different facets of God's sovereignty. Three different facets of God's glorious sovereignty. And the first facet is found in the verses that we just read. Verses 24 through 30 details God's gracious revealing of himself. God graciously reveals. He is sovereign over all things. And he graciously reveals through that sovereignty... The plans that he has, he alone graciously reveals. That's point number one. God graciously reveals. Daniel, in verse 24, after he has prayed, after he's received the vision of not only the dream, but the interpretation of the dream that we looked at last week, Daniel runs to Arioch and tells Arioch, I know the dream, and I know the meaning of the dream, so don't kill the wise men in Babylon. Very interesting. We have to stop right there. Daniel cares about the safety of godless pagans. It would have been very easy for him to say, these men are liars, they're evil sorcerers. We knew what they were doing last time, remember? Just tell us the dream, Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll give you the meaning of the dream. We'll lie about it. And everybody knows that they were doing that. They were necromancers. They were wicked. They were practicing occultic, dark arts, black magic despicable practices. It would have been very easy for Daniel to say, I know the dream, but don't tell Neb that I know the dream because I want them killed. They deserve death. They deserve the penalty. Let them die. 
But Daniel doesn't do that. Why? Daniel doesn't do that because he was graciously given the interpretation of the dream. He did nothing to deserve that interpretation of the dream. He did nothing to get that from God. God graciously revealed that to him because God is gracious and God is compassionate. And therefore Daniel says, I must be gracious and compassionate as well. And so his first plea to Arioch is, please save the wise men of Babylon. Give them more time. Let them live. They're saved because Daniel and his three friends are living in their midst in Babylon. They're saved because of the deportation from Judah into Babylon. Those of you who were here at our church when we were studying through the book of Ruth, you remember that one sermon that we went through uh, on the, the phrase, it just so happened. And we just looked at all of the aspects of God's sovereignty to bring about the good in Ruth's life and Boaz's life and Naomi's life. And we talked about our own just so happens. I, I wonder what the wise men's just so happens would have been when they went home that day, talking to their wives. And it just so happened there's this guy that came from Judah. He's an exile from uh, Israel, from Judah into Babylon. He's uh, a worshiper of Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar really doesn't like him. He stood up to say, I'm not going to eat your food. And then Nebuchadnezzar, instead of killing him, says, okay, go ahead. And now Nebuchadnezzar likes these guys. And you'll never believe what happened. It just so happened that that's the guy that got the interpretation of the dream and kept us alive. God does this all the time. God's doing that in and through you here in this valley. God has followers of him interspersed in the midst of godless pagans to preserve their lives. Think of our study of Acts this last semester. Paul and Silas in the jail in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. It just so happened that these two Jewish men were there in the jail when there was an earthquake and the jailer was going to kill himself and he goes home that day and he's saved. Why? Well, it just so happened that Paul and Silas were there in the jail. Think about Paul on that ship. You remember when they were shipwrecked and Paul says, God's told me no one here is going to die. Why? Because Paul's there. And so too, God is using you in your community to preserve people. God always places his children in positions to be a blessing to non-believers and a source of life to them. Living life in a godless world is not about self-preservation. It's about selfless work to preserve others. And so Daniel's concern for the welfare of those around him should not go unnoticed. We could easily skip by it, but you have to think of how easy it would have been in this situation to just say, let them be killed, but not for Daniel. He knows the character of his God and he wants to live that character out in front of these these wise men. Arioch, after verse 24, after Daniel goes to Arioch and says, I know the dream, Arioch, verse 25, hurriedly brings Daniel to the presence of Nebuchadnezzar and says, I found a man that can interpret this dream. Now, we know that that's not true. We know Arioch wants to steal the credit here, how often man attempts to steal God's glory. And in light of that, Daniel, when he's given an opportunity to steal glory from God, when Nebuchadnezzar says, do you know the dream? Did you figure this dream out? I think because he just heard Arioch say, I, I found a guy that can do this. And Daniel knows that's not true. God graciously did this. Daniel's going to take the opposite tactic and instantly deflect. While Arioch appears to take credit for Daniel, Daniel will not take credit for this dream at all. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 26, says, are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen? and its interpretation, and Daniel in essence says, no, I can't. You're asking the wrong question. Can I do this? No, I can't. But there is a God who can do that, and he has made this dream known. 
Daniel deflects and points straight to God, the only one who could possibly reveal this. Daniel didn't use astrology. He didn't use magic. God alone revealed this. And that's the point of this first section, verses 24 through 30. God alone is the revealer of these mysteries. Daniel says that in verse 28. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He's made known these things. Verse 29, he reveals mysteries and he's made them known to you what will take place. Verse 30, as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me because of anything in me, no wisdom in me, no uh, amazing giftiness in me. I, I don't have any of that. It's God and God alone. God graciously has revealed himself to Daniel. And brothers and sisters, just think of how lost we would be if God had not revealed himself to us. How lost would we be if God was not a revealing God? I always go back to 1 Kings chapter 18, the, the prophets of Baal and Elijah on Mount Carmel doing that, that battle to see whose God is the one true God. And because the prophets of Baal have a God that they worship who has not revealed himself to them, they have no idea how to get his attention. They have no idea what he wants. They have no idea what he requires of them. So first, they start praying. That doesn't work. Secondly, they start dancing. That doesn't work. Third, they start cutting themselves. That doesn't work. They have no idea what to do because Baal did not reveal himself to them. Not so with our God, the only true God. He reveals himself. Robert Raymond writes, Christians should be overwhelmed by the magnitude of this simple truth that they take so much for granted that the eternal God has chosen to share with us some of the truths that are on his mind. He condescends to elevate us poor, undeserving sinners by actually sharing with us a portion of what he knows. What a gracious God. He doesn't have to do that. But in his kindness, he does. And here in the book of Daniel, we might look at this and say, this is miraculous. This is amazing. This is supernatural. And it is. But we might be tempted to think, how cool is this? And I wish this would happen to me today. That somehow this, the visions and dreams and things like that, this is what we need. And I wish we had it, but we don't. I would submit to you that what you hold in your hands right now the completed, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God is more miraculous than Daniel receiving the dream that he received. What you have in your hands is a greater mystery and a greater supernatural revelation of God's grace to us because it's the entirety of the mind of Christ given to us in exactly the way that God wants us to have it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says that in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says that we have been given the mind of Christ through the Spirit, giving us understanding of the Scriptures. That's what our brother Ricky preached on a few weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 1. In the latter days uh, behind us, in the, the earlier times, we had uh, prophets, we had people coming with dreams and visions that were giving us these truths. But in these latter days, now... We have Christ. We have the Son of God, the exact representation of who God the Father is here on earth, speaking on his behalf. And as 2 Peter tells us, chapter 1, we would do well to listen to him 
to pay attention to him like a lamp shining in a dark place. Even Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you go back to Moses, Moses is saying you've been given visions and dreams, you've been given signs and wonders, you've been given all these miracles, but you shouldn't cling to those because there is the prophet that's coming and you need to listen to him. He's going to speak to you, listen to him. It's not visions, it's not signs, it's not dreams, it's not wonders. Listen to him. So, Point number one in verses 24 through 30 that we see in Daniel is God sovereignly and graciously reveals himself to us. And apart from that, we would be hopeless. Apart from him telling us about himself, there is no way we could ever figure out who he is and what he wants. God graciously reveals himself. Secondly, number two, this is verses 31 through 45, God sovereignly reigns. So he graciously reveals and he sovereignly reigns. He sovereignly reigns after Daniel says, it's not me who understands this dream, it's God who's made it known to me. Verse 31, he describes the dream in verses 31 through 35, and then he gives the interpretation of that dream in verses 36 through 45. So let's just read the description of the dream, starting in verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, and that statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, And its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And the iron... The clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the dream. What does the dream mean? Well, Daniel's glad we're asking that question because he's going to give us the interpretation of the dream. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation before the king. The interpretation of this dream gives us really six different kingdoms that are successive to one another to varying degrees, six different kingdoms that descend from the top all the way down from the head to the toes. And they fit perfectly with everything that we know about history. So first... We have this head of gold, verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. So again, God has given you this kingdom. You're king over everything in the known world, but God's the one who made you king. He gave you the kingdom. He gave you the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So... Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar ruling over Babylon, that's the head of gold. So picture in your mind a statue, we've got a head of gold, and that head of gold is Babylon. It represents Babylon. Babylon as an empire lasted 66 years from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. After Nebuchadnezzar's reign of 43 years, the empire only lasted 29 or 23 more years after that. So it was Nebuchadnezzar for a long time, and then a few other kings, and that was it. That's Babylon the head of gold. Secondly, we have a chest of, and arms of silver. Chest and arms of silver. And that's 
Medo-Persia, verse 39. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. So Nebuchadnezzar, you have Babylon. It's the head of gold. Secondly, there's going to come another kingdom, Medo-Persia, that's going to take over your kingdom. Medo-Persia followed Babylon in uh, 539 BC. It's actually recorded for us in Daniel chapter 5, where Darius the Mede shows up and takes over Babylon. Medo-Persia lasted for more than 200 years from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C. And the empire of Medo-Persia is described in Daniel 7 and 8. And so Daniel says, this next empire is going to follow after yours. And in verse 39, he says, it's going to be inferior to you. It's going to be inferior to you. Literally, that word inferior is earth word. It's going to be more earthy. There's going to be something about it that's not as regal and beautiful and elegant in this statue. Just think about it. The kingdom begins in the top, made out of fine gold, and at the very bottom, it just ends in dust. The metals in this statue, they descend in value from gold all the way down to clay. They ascend in strength, which makes sense because if an empire is going to take over another empire, it's got to be stronger than the uh, previous empire. So it makes sense that they ascend in strength. But Daniel says they are going to be inferior. They're going to keep getting worse. What does inferior mean? What are the ways in which these empires are going to get worse? I, I think there are a number of ways that the empires become inferior to one another. But I'll, I'll submit two to you right now. Number one, I think that they will become inferior in authority. I think they will become inferior in authority. Just think about Nebuchadnezzar all the way down to Rome. Rome is a republic. Yes, there's an emperor, but there is an attempt at a democracy. There's an attempt at giving checks and balances, having the people have a little bit more power. Nebuchadnezzar does not even know the word democracy, right? He does not understand that word. That's not in his vocabulary. He is king and God over the entire known world. And so I think that there is an inferiority as far as the, the authority and the power from Nebuchadnezzar down to Rome. I think more than that, and I would follow in the footsteps of John Calvin on this. John Calvin write, writes a whole uh, kind of like a dissertation on the inferiority of these kingdoms being moral inferiority. That the world is progressively getting worse. Things just keep getting worse, kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. The world's sinfulness will continue to increase as we march towards the culmination of human history. This means that the governments of our world are not moving closer to a sense of utopia, but rather in the opposite direction towards dystopia. Each empire, each kingdom becomes worse, inferior to the other. I think that that's not only true biblically, that's true experientially. We've seen that. We know that that's true. On the whole, history degenerates. It carries inside of it its own germ of disintegration. Some may complain that that destroys any sense of optimism that we might have. If the Bible's telling us that things are going to get worse, then how can we possibly be optimistic? I would submit to you that it does destroy empty optimism. If you think that the world's going to get better, that's empty optimism. It doesn't destroy true optimism, because true optimism comes from an indestructible king on an indestructible throne reigning over an indestructible kingdom that we are citizens of. Not this world, but that world. That's why we have true optimism, not empty optimism. We know, realistically, the world's getting worse. 
And we can know that with a smile on our face and with hope and assurance in our hearts. So we have Babylon, the head of gold, Medo-Persia, the chest and the arms of silver. The third empire, the third kingdom, is the stomach and the thighs of bronze. And this represents Greece. The stomach and the thighs of bronze represents Greece. This is the end of verse 39. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all of the earth. This is Alexander the Great taking over. He was born in Macedonia after the death of his father Philip in 336 BC. He crossed over in what we would call Turkey today. And at that time, it was a portion of the Persian Empire. And he begins his conquests and takes over the known world. He conquers the world and then he died at 33 years old. The kingdom lasted for 185 years from 331 to 146 BC. Just as Daniel's predicting. And Daniel chapter 8 is going to give us a lot more information about Alexander the Great. So detailed and precise that people who do not like the Bible and want to disprove it will say the book of Daniel had to have been written after Alexander the Great, not before, because this is so precise and this is so accurate that there's no way this was prophesied. But it was almost 300 years before it actually happened. Finally, number four, we have legs of iron Verse 40, and then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So, like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these into pieces. And the legs of iron represents Rome. Rome is the legs of iron. So we've got Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Successive empires. The Roman Empire dominated the Mediterranean world for nearly 500 years from the defeat of Carthage in 146 BC, with uh, Alexander the Great was uh, dead at that point, but uh, from the defeat of Carthage and taking over the Greek Empire to the division of the Eastern and Western Empires in 395 AD, the last Roman Empire in the West ruled after that split until 476 AD. So in the West, Rome died in 476 AD. In the East, Rome continued to 14. 53 AD. And that's why some people would say that's even the division of the legs, that the, the two legs represent the split of these two western and eastern divisions of the Roman Empire. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7 tells us that uh, the Roman Empire has iron teeth and it can break anything. And that's exactly what we know about Rome. So we have a perfect description of the history that is yet to come for Daniel. Babylon will be taken over by Medo-Persia, which will be taken over by Greece, which will be taken over by Rome. We have perfect succession of that as we see in history past. We know that. But the dream doesn't end there. The dream doesn't end there. Verse 41 adds a little bit of a conundrum. Up until verse 41, pretty much Everyone agrees in church history on those four empires, on gold, silver, uh, on the bronze, and on the iron, on that being Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Almost everyone agrees. I mean, 99.9% of the church agrees on that from all of church history. It's in verse 41 where things change a little bit. Verse 41, in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. And it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, part of it will be brittle. 
And in that, you saw the iron mixed with the common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will, it will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So, as you're going down this statue and you see the descending metals and you get all the way down to the feet, verse 41 says that it's no longer made only of iron, but it's iron and clay mixed together in the feet and in the toes. And in the days of the kings that reign over that empire, God is going to send this rock that's going to destroy the kingdom and establish a kingdom that will never end. So there's two main interpretations. Interpretation number one is that that is Rome in the past. That's Rome in the past. That Jesus was sent as a baby to be born as a human, to live and to die, and in doing so, he's the rock who establishes a spiritual kingdom and crushes the kingdoms of this world through establishing his church that will exist forever. That would be one interpretation. However, there's a second interpretation. The second interpretation is that this is a future kingdom. This is a future kingdom that these toes make up a kind of conglomeration, a confederation of kingdoms, of kings over one kingdom that will rule and reign. And in that physical kingdom, in the days of those kings, Jesus will appear, destroy that kingdom, and set up a physical, literal kingdom. Now, it's true, if you go to the past interpretation, if you go to this is Rome in the past, and this is speaking of Jesus' first coming, it's true that Jesus established his church at the first coming. And it's true that he established his kingdom, spiritually speaking, and it will never go away. But there's a couple issues with that interpretation. Again, well-meaning brothers and sisters, love them to death. They're amazing. Uh, they, they love Jesus. This isn't an area to divide over. But there are people that will say this is a spiritual kingdom, so this is only speaking of literal Rome in the past, and that's it. I have a couple issues. Number one... Every kingdom in this list is a physical kingdom, and then all of a sudden they would switch to this being Jesus establishing a spiritual kingdom. It's a physical kingdom, Babylon, physical Babylon, physical Medo-Persia, physical Greece, physical Rome, but then all of a sudden we'd be switching to a spiritual kingdom, which doesn't fit the hermeneutic of what's happening in this passage. Secondly, and historically, if we're going to take this as Jesus shows up in verse 44, in ancient Rome, and destroys Rome, and takes a kingdom for himself, and obliterates Rome, that historically isn't true. Rome never got weaker after Jesus. In fact, Rome got stronger after Jesus died. Rome got way stronger after Jesus died. It took over more land, took over uh, more of a government and authority. Rome got way stronger. Of course, it ended eventually. Also, Rome never had ten emperors or ten kings reigning at the same time like these ten toes seem to be representing. So, I believe that this has to be happening later. This has to be happening later. So we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And then as you go down to the feet, 
There's a clear distinction because you have iron and then you have iron and clay mixed together. And so this iron and clay mixed together is a separate kingdom. And it's a future kingdom. And it's a Rome-like kingdom. It's a Rome-esque kingdom. It's going to be like Rome and that's very powerful, but it's not like Rome and that's very brittle. I think that this has to be happening later because it's not speaking of Jesus' first coming, but his second coming. By the way, just side note, this really helps us to understand why, if you feel any sense of confusion right now, this really helps us to understand why it must have been so difficult for the disciples not to understand that Jesus was not bringing his first, the kingdom in his first coming in that moment, right? It seems here like it's supposed to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Jesus' kingdom, right? That's what it seems like. So obviously, when you're a disciple of Jesus following him, and Jesus says, I've come to bring my kingdom, you're thinking, this is it. Look at Daniel chapter 2. We've got Babylon, that happened, they're gone. We've got Medo-Persia, that happened, they're gone. We've got Greece, that happened, they're gone. We're living in Rome, and we're told that there's going to be a stone that's going to come in and shatter these feet, the, the, the iron and clay mixed together. <laughs> Surely this is Jesus establishing his kingdom. This helps us understand why it was so difficult for the Jews, why it was so confusing for them at Jesus' first coming. It seems like Jesus is going to be the rock who's going to destroy past Rome. Why didn't he? Old Testament prophecies do this all the time. They lump things together. Even in Daniel, we'll see other prophecies like this, where they lump together predictions concerning first and second comings of Jesus without regard for the thousands of years that happen in between. Jesus does this even in the synagogue. You remember Luke chapter 4, he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads three quarters of the way through and stops mid-sentence. Not even a period there, he just stops mid-sentence. Why? Because he has fulfilled three quarters of that prophecy in his first coming. But the last quarter of that prophecy has yet to be fulfilled in his second coming. And so he stops. This has not been fulfilled. Remember, he ends by saying, the things that I've read have been fulfilled in your midst. You stop mid-sentence. What about the, the rest of the verse? Well, that's later. So even Jesus himself shows us Old Testament isn't the best place to get your airtight chronology. So Jesus, I believe here in verse 44, is the stone that's going to show up and destroy the kingdom of the Antichrist at his second coming. It has to be a second coming because it's not a spiritual kingdom, it's a physical kingdom because Rome didn't get destroyed when Jesus died, it actually got stronger when Jesus died. And because there weren't ten emperors reigning over Rome when Jesus showed up. So I believe these toes, these ten toes, verse 41 through 43, represent the coming kingdom of the Antichrist. And you can just write down Daniel chapter 7, verse 24. Daniel chapter 7, verse 24. We studied this when we studied the book of Revelation. Several of you have said, time out, you studied Revelation before Daniel. Didn't you do this backwards? And the answer is yes. I did not expect to be studying Daniel. Uh, I wanted to go through Revelation, and then I thought we were going to go somewhere else. And then I thought, we've been in Daniel so much in our Revelation sermon series, we might as well study it. We might as well go through it. Even some of the things we're studying today, we already studied in our Revelation study. So chapter 7, actually just turn there really quickly, chapter 7, since we're in Daniel, verse 24, as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, ten kings arise, and another one 
this Antichrist who rules over them. So the, these ten kings are the ten kings of the future kingdom that the Antichrist rules over. Turn to Revelation chapter 13. You'll, you'll remember this in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Revelation chapter 13, this is the arrival of the Antichrist. John says, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So the ten horns represent ten kings that he operates and rules over, that he has authority and power over. Go over to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, and they have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So ten kings, ten horns. The ten kings are represented by ten horns in Revelation. The ten horns are also seen in Daniel chapter 7. Ten horns in Daniel chapter 7. Who are these ten horns? Where did we first see them? And I believe we're first seeing them here in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, these ten toes that are the iron and clay mixed together are a description of the Antichrist's future kingdom. So we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then this Rome 2.0. Some people think it's going to be actually revised, resurrected Rome, and I don't know if it's actually revised, resurrected Rome. We, we talked all about this in our study in Revelation. I think it's just Rome-esque in certain things, but it has the DNA of Rome inside of it. And in the midst of Antichrist's kingdom, with these ten-nation confederation under the Antichrist, Jesus is going to show up and destroy that kingdom. He's going to destroy it. Just a couple of things to note in verse 41. The Antichrist's kingdom will be a divided kingdom. Uh, potter's clay doesn't mix with iron. They don't mix together. So these ten kings don't exactly mix together. It's going to be a divided kingdom. Antichrist's kingdom will be a powerful kingdom. Verse 41 tells us it has the toughness of iron. So it will be a powerful kingdom. The future kingdom of the Antichrist to rule the world will be powerful. But it will be uneven. Verse 42, some parts will be strong. Some parts will be brittle. It will be a mixed kingdom. There will be blended lives, cultures, and relationships, as verse 43 tells us, combining with one another with the seed of men. So it's combined, it's mixed. And in the middle of this kingdom of the Antichrist, verse 41 and 45 give us one final kingdom. So six kingdoms total in this statue, in this dream. Kingdom of Babylon, head of gold. Kingdom of Medo-Persia, Chest, of, chest and arms of silver. Kingdom of Greece, uh, the, the stomach and the thighs of bronze. Kingdom of Rome, the legs of iron. Antichrist's future kingdom, the feet and the toes of iron and clay mixed together. And then finally, the kingdom that the stone cut out without hands is going to establish that will never end. This is the sixth kingdom, verse 44 and 45. In the days of those kings. So in the days of the kings that reign, those ten toes, the ten kings, the ten horns that reign with the Antichrist, the God of heaven will set up his own kingdom, which will never be destroyed. So every single kingdom in the statue has been destroyed. Babylon's destroyed by Medo-Persia. Greece is destroyed uh, by uh, Rome. All of these kingdoms are being destroyed, but this is a kingdom that God will set up that will never be destroyed. It will endure forever. It will not be left for another people to inherit. I love that in verse 44. 
And inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out out of the mountain without hands and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God who has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. This is the climax of all of human history. This kingdom will be established at the second coming of Jesus in the days of the ten kings in that kingdom of the Antichrist. What God is telling Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and us as well is with the exile of Israel into Babylon and as Nebuchadnezzar rules and reigns over the entire world as the head of gold, the time of the Gentiles has begun. That's what God is saying here. It's a phrase that's used in Luke chapter 20 by Jesus. The time of the Gentiles begins when Israel is removed out of their land and they are taken away into captivity. Gentiles own and rule the world as a whole. And that will happen all the way through to the very end of the reign of the Antichrist, ruling and reigning over the world as a Gentile power. And then Jesus will come to establish his kingdom. This kingdom, in verses 44 and 45, will be established by God himself. God of heaven will set up a kingdom by himself. There's no evidence that the stone that's cut out without hands rolls down. This is one of the reasons why maybe Nebuchadnezzar was afraid of this dream, because he just sees the statue. Maybe the camera's just kind of panning around the statue and the gold is shimmering because the sun's shining on it. And just as the camera's kind of panning around in his dream, all of a sudden, bam, the stone just hits the statue and just obliterates everything. And, and every time that happens, Nebuchadnezzar just goes, huh, and wakes up, right? He's just terrified. And I think that's what's happening. He's not seeing this thing just gently roll down the mountain and obviously crash in. No, it's destroying. God establishes this kingdom through the destruction of the other kingdoms. These kingdoms here on the earth now are God's will for now. But when God's kingdom comes, it will require complete destruction and removal of all other earthly kings and kingdoms. Another way to say it is God's kingdom will come by catastrophe and not by development. The world's not going to get better and then the kingdom of God comes. God's kingdom comes by him obliterating all of the evil kingdoms of this world. And who will rule the kingdom? It's the stone in verse 45, the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands. The stone is Jesus Christ. He himself is the stone. The Bible, in so many different passages, describes the coming of the Messiah as a stone being given. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes in it will not be disturbed. Zechariah 3, verse 9, Behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes, seven eyes, completeness of knowing everything. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, He shall become a sanctuary to both the house of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Psalm 118, verse 22, you guys know that passage, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus quotes that passage in Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20. As early as Genesis 49, verse 24, we have a description of the future Messiah being a stone that's going to be given from God. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, there is the shepherd 
the stone of Israel. So when Daniel sees a stone, everyone would have known, all of his Jewish readers would have known, that's the Messiah. That's the Messiah that's come to establish his kingdom. And he does it totally victoriously. Verse 44 The kingdom will not be left for any other people. It will crush and put an end to all of the kingdoms. It will endure forever. It's an eternal kingdom. There is no sequel to the story of this kingdom. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. You know that passage. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So as we saw in Revelation chapter 20, when Jesus returns at his second coming, Revelation 19, he's going to destroy the Antichrist, remove him, and Revelation 20, establish the millennial kingdom to rule and to reign over. And after the millennial kingdom is done, we are swept on into eternity, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. It's an eternal kingdom. Lastly, one other description about this kingdom, it will certainly happen. It will certainly happen. As surely as there was a Babylon, a Medo-Persia, a Greece, and a Roman Empire, there will be a kingdom that Christ builds here. Did the first kingdoms come and go just like the prophecy said? Yes. Will this last kingdom come and never go just like the prophecy says? Yes. Stephen Miller writes, what a comforting passage this is. In this present world of injustice, wars, and crime, It is reassuring to know that Christ is coming. And when he comes, all of the evils of this age will end. There is indeed coming a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, because Messiah's reign of righteousness will extend to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, are you tired of this world? Are you tired of its empires and its kingdoms and its politicians? Well, just hang on because Jesus is coming and his kingdom is coming and he will rule on this planet and righteousness will reign and justice will roll down like a river. That's the meaning of this dream. That's the meaning for CVC today that we understand Jesus is coming back. And his kingdom will be established. This, king, this dream speaks to our fears. Don't ever be impressed with human political power, no matter how ironish it might appear. It's all fleeting. Never fear it. Daniel 2 is telling us to look these empires square in the eye and repeat after Jesus before Pilate, you would have no authority other than what's been given to you by heaven. Here's the main thing of this dream in this passage. The human history that we see unfolding in front of us, just like in the past and just like in the future, is under the entire control of our sovereign God, and he has a purpose that will be achieved no matter what. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10. Remember the former things long past, because I'm God, there is no other. I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God 
perfectly knows the future. He's sovereign over all of the affairs of this world. He has a plan for this world. He's ordering history according to his plan. The kingdoms of this world are temporary. Only God's kingdom is eternal. And all of human history is building towards the coming kingdom of Christ. David Jeremiah says, You may not know what the future holds, but you know who holds the future. And since the whole world is in God's hands, your world today is in his hands. If I didn't have this passage, if I didn't have verse 44, that there's coming a king who's going to obliterate the kingdoms of this world and set up an everlasting kingdom of righteousness, if I didn't have Daniel 2, verse 44, I don't know if I'd be able to wake up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other. I don't know if I'd have peace and confident assurance and joy and hope if I didn't have Daniel 2, verse 44. But because we have Daniel 2, verse 44, as Dale Ralph Davis says, you can walk into the future with a God like this who shows you that history is going toward his unshakable kingdom. And he assures you that even though you may have personal uncertainties, you follow a God who knows what is in the darkness. And you can keep going with hope and without fear. Therefore, we have a God who is sovereign over all of human history and reigns in goodness and in glory over every event that takes place. Number one, we have a God who sovereignly and graciously reveals himself to us. Number two, we have a God who sovereignly reigns over all of human history. And number three, we have, finally, because we have a God like that, we can rejoice in God alone. We can rejoice in God and in God alone. This is verse 46 through the end of the chapter. Then... King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering, fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. I like some of what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. There's some of it that I don't like. After the, the dream has been revealed, the aftermath is that Nebuchadnezzar is convinced that God is the greatest of gods, but that's the problem. You see how Nebuchadnezzar says, surely your God is a God of gods, a Lord of lords. So Marduk is still God, it's just that Yahweh's over Marduk. Yahweh's better than Marduk for sure, but Marduk's still there. So he's not a monotheist yet. He might get there eventually, but he's not a monotheist Yet, can I just say, there are a lot of people like this. There's a lot of people like this in our world today. They're impressed by God. They think that God is really amazing and they like being around God's people. They think he's pretty cool. But they're content to worship him alongside other things. They're content to worship God and worship whatever else they want to worship. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. You don't become converted until you come to the absolute end of yourself. And we're going to see that happen in Nebuchadnezzar in the rest of this story. What kingdom do you live for? What kingdom do you love? Do you love your kingdom, your empire, or do you love the kingdom of God? You know one really easy way to tell what kingdom you're living for? When was the last time you got offended? When was the last time you got offended and you got hurt? Okay, think about it. When was the last time someone hurt you or someone offended you? You got it in your mind? 
Were they breaking God's law? Or were they breaking your kingdom's law? Did you get mad at somebody because they offended you because they broke God's law? They, they went against God's word. They disobeyed God himself. And that grieved your heart. Or did you get mad at them because they broke the kingdom law that you built up around your own heart? You didn't live life the way that I think you should. Not contradicting God's word. Nebuchadnezzar has built himself a kingdom and he loves it and he says, God can exist in my kingdom along with Marduk and all the other gods. I'm totally fine with that. What kingdom do you live for? Nebuchadnezzar says, I like this God that you serve. So verse 48, he promotes Daniel. He gives him great gifts. He makes him a ruler over the whole province of Babylon chief prefect over all of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel, after three years, is now number two in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is king, and then Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man is Daniel. And this, you remember, is all before that third deportation of Israel, of Judah, into Babylon. So Daniel has been made second in command in Babylon before the masses of people show up from Judah into Babylon. Just like Joseph... With Israel in Egypt, God is preparing the way before these exiles to live in security, to live in peace. Last thing that we see here is what Daniel does. Verse 49, Daniel makes a request of the king and appoints Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Daniel asks the king to bring his three friends into power with him. So, Daniel uses the power that the king's given him to say, can I bring my three friends in to power as well? Very interesting. Daniel is willing and totally fine using their Babylonian names. Remember, they have the Jewish names, the Hebrew names, that you could literally share the gospel through those names. Here, Daniel says, I'm fine using Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Babylonian names. He's so gracious. He's so kind. He's so gentle. And notice that he does not say, well, King Nebuchadnezzar, we know. We just saw the dream, and we know how human history is going to go. We know your kingdom is going to be destroyed. We know all these kingdoms are going to be destroyed. And then the rock is going to show up and build his eternal kingdom. So who cares about this kingdom right now? I'm just going to study the Torah and get ready for that kingdom. No, notice how Daniel and his three friends don't isolate themselves from the kingdom of this world as they waited for God to establish his kingdom, rather they pour themselves into seeking the welfare of their temporary home in Babylon. We are to serve where we've been placed by our sovereign God within the fading kingdom that we're a part of while we wait for that final kingdom. This is so encouraging and instructive for us. You might look around and you might think, look at the kingdoms of this world there's no chance that we, a small church in Northridge, can make any difference. Look at the kingdoms of this world. Look at the kingdom that we live in. There's no chance that a tiny little church like CBC can do anything to establish the gospel and the hope of the coming kingdom in this world. It'd be easy to lose heart. But brothers and sisters, how encouraging is this? We're a part of this kingdom that's yet to come. We are citizens of that future kingdom. 
And God in his grace has us as an embassy, as an outpost of that kingdom here in Southern California. God has told us, you guys are the outpost to tell the kingdoms of this world there's a kingdom coming. And you're a citizen of that kingdom, not of this kingdom. And so us as a small little embassy, we're waving the flag of Jesus Christ saying, please turn to Jesus. Do you want true satisfaction, true joy? It can only be found in Christ. Jim Boy says, the kingdoms of this world are powerful, sometimes even glorious from our point of view, but their strength is given to them by God. And just as God sets up kingdoms, so does he bring them down and dispose of them. He was going to do that with Nebuchadnezzar. He was going to do that with all the world kingdoms of the past. And he will do that with those of our time as well. God's kingdom is unshakable. So, our sovereign God is the God who graciously reveals. He's the God who sovereignly reigns. And he's the God in whom we rejoice. What are we to do with these verses? What are we to do with the beauty of these passages? I think we can just, we can end by staring at that stone. Brothers and sisters, we know who the stone is. We know who this rock is. Alistair Begg says it this way, we know the name of the king whom death could never hold. Yet, some of us, using the language of the Psalms, have just hung up our harps We're living in a kingdom that is not our home, and so we just hang up our harps. We lament over the fact that we don't have a home. We find ourselves complaining about everything, looking back to the good old days, worrying that the church cannot survive the empire of aggressive secular post-Christendom. Too much of the public face of evangelicalism is characterized by vociferous, angry, venting, or panicking, rather than prayerful, humble, calm, and confident belief in a sovereign God who is in control of all things. I think I've said it every single week in this Daniel sermon series, and I think we're just going to keep saying it. If we know that God is sovereign and we trust in the sovereign God, then we should be the happiest, most joyful, most hopeful, most confidently assured people in the world. This solid assurance of the victory of God's kingdom, it's meant to bring a contagious certainty to the people of God, people that are so often squashed under the arrogant heels of earth's kingdoms and rulers. And God graciously has us here this morning to remind us, you're a part of a a kingdom that will never fade away. So do you rejoice in the revelation of God to you? Do you rejoice in God's reign over you? And do you rejoice in the fact that you know the rock of ages? Uh, Augustus Tepleti, who was born in 1740. He's the author of the hymn, Rock of Ages. His father was in the British Army. His father was away for most of his life. His mother was a devout Methodist and wanted her son to be a pastor and not a soldier. So she paid for him to go to seminary. And Before going to seminary, he went on a vacation with another family to Dublin. He was born in England. And he went to a Methodist revival in a barn And he gets saved in this Methodist revival in a barn in Dublin, Ireland. 
And he writes this, quote, Strange that I, who had so long sat under the means of grace in England, should be brought nigh unto God in an obscure part of Ireland amidst a handful of God's people met together in a barn under the ministry of someone so illiterate he probably couldn't even spell his name. He didn't really have a high view of people in Dublin, apparently. He got home after getting saved, went back to England, started plugging into his church. His pastor was the very well-known, very famous Thomas Manton, who wrote many books about faith. He's the guy, uh, the, the song that we sing, uh, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, that, that phrase, the, the true and better Adam. The true and better Adam, Thomas Manton, is the guy who kind of coined that phrase. Tom, uh, Augustus Toplady sat under Thomas Manton's preaching for years, and he just despised the music. The singing was so awful, so he decided to fix what he called the worship problem in the church. So he started writing hymns. This is just about the time that Isaac Watts started writing hymns. Augustus Toplady wrote hundreds of hymns, published over a dozen hymnals. And when he was 35, writing hymns in Thomas Manton's church, Thomas Manton met with him and said, you need to go pastor. You're a pastor. Go preach. Start your own church and go preach. So he did. He pastored and preached at a church for three years. And then he died at the age of 38 from a very severe illness. When he was sick, lying on his deathbed, his doctor came to his bedside and said, Sir, your pulse is getting weaker and it doesn't look good. I think you may soon die. To which he smiled and said, That, sir, is the best news I've heard all day. His most famous hymn, Rock of Ages, was taken here from Daniel 2, where God takes a rock out of the mountain and crushes the kingdoms of this world. He wrote an introduction to the hymn that I believe is a great introduction to our time of communion. He said this, If you fall into sin, be humbled, but never despair. Pray afresh to God who is able to cleanse you and raise you up. He will again set you on your feet. Look to the blood of his covenant and say to the Lord from the depth of your heart, you are the rock of ages. Cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Brothers and sisters, we come to gather in this moment to feast on the rock of ages, who, yes, is coming again to obliterate all of the kingdoms of this world and establish his physical kingdom, but he has already come that first time to obliterate the sin in our hearts, to do away with the wrath of God against our sin, to make peace with God so that we could be reconciled to God and not have to bear our punishment because it was born on our behalf in the person and work of Christ. So therefore, we gather together to feast on the rock of ages and to remind each other afresh, anew, cleft for me. Let's go together and hide ourselves in him. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so gracious, even as we studied here in Daniel 2, that Daniel says, there's no way I could have gotten this on my own. It's you graciously revealing it to us. You have graciously revealed your plan of all of human history to us, and you've graciously revealed it through Daniel and through the rest of your word. 
And so we gather together longing for that second coming and looking back at the first coming and so thankful that we do not have to fear as Nebuchadnezzar did because that rock who is yet to come, he already came and sealed our pardon with his blood. And so we just cry out, hallelujah. What a savior. Thank you, Jesus. And we want to feast on you now. We pray this in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask the men if they would come forward and distribute these elements.